message is called The Road to Redemption from Luke chapter 19. I heard of a, little, of a story of a little boy who uh, was sick on Palm Sunday a few years back, and he stayed home from church uh, with his mother, and his father returned from church holding a palm branch. How many of you remember going to churches and when you were whatever age, but you know you were given palm branches, and um, we didn't do that, so I'm sorry if you're disappointed this morning, we didn't do that. But uh, his father came home from church, and he had a palm branch uh, that he brought home from church, and the little boy was curious and asked, why do you have the palm branch, that palm branch, Dad? And uh, Dad said, well, you see, when Jesus came into town, everyone waved palm branches to honor him, so we got palm branches today. And the little boy said, you got to be kidding me. The one day I stay home from church and Jesus shows up. Well, today is Palm Sunday. And uh, we're going to commemorate the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Interesting that the account of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem the Sunday prior to uh, Friday when he was crucified and Sunday uh, of resurrection, the following Sunday, seven days before uh, he was crucified, and he presented himself to Israel as the promised Messiah and King. And it's interesting because you, if you know anything about the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, they all parallel the life of Jesus, but they have different uh, aspects and different emphases uh, concerning details, and a lot of that has to do with the audience and who they're writing to. But this entry into Jerusalem is recorded in all four of these Gospels. Some have details, others don't, but they're all recorded in the Gospels. And rather than reading it all up front, as we walk through it, we're going to read the various passages, but I do encourage you to have your Bibles open to Luke chapter 19. That'll be the primary passage uh, that we will look at. So in the uh, life of Jesus, in his ministry, uh, this is Sunday. Well, we, we emphasize or celebrate uh, what we uh, refer to as Palm Sunday. And uh, by Friday, what we traditionally call Good Friday, but by Friday, the very people who uh, should have welcomed him as their king will be ones who have rejected him as their king. Uh, some of the people cried out and yelled, Hosanna, on Sunday, and some of those same people cried out, Crucify him the following, that Friday. Uh, some of the same people who worshipped him on Sunday, uh, on Friday, saw him hanging from a cross. And so a lot happens in sometimes what is referred to as the Holy Week, Passion Week. I didn't grow up calling it Holy Week or Passion Week, and maybe you did or didn't, but that's kind of a shorthand uh, re- referral to this special week leading up to Easter. And so today, as we celebrate and commemorate and acknowledge this week, uh, looking ahead for Resurrection Sunday, I want us to examine the events of this triumphal entry in the life and ministry of Christ. And so, uh, to entitle this, The Road to Redemption. The word triumphal or triumph 
uh, is, means to celebrate a victory. Now, what events eventually happened on Friday of the crucifixion would not appear to be very victorious. But how many of you know that, uh, as the old preacher we've heard many times and some of the things that we played, it's Friday, but what? But Sunday is coming. Amen? We know what happens on Sunday, on Resurrection Sunday. But we celebrate and know the rest of the story. The folks here in this moment, even his disciples, they weren't fully aware of all that would take place. And you know enough of the account of the Gospels when, uh, when they, they, they weren't really sure even of who Jesus was. They, I mean, they recognized him as the Son of God, but as far as their concept of Messiah and what Jesus as Messiah would do differed from kind of the way they had uh, been brought up or the way that they had been thinking of what the Messiah should do or he shouldn't do. And, but the life of Christ is a life of great victory. The Bible says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. And this morning, as we look at this, uh, what I've called the road to redemption, Jesus' triumphal entry, let me uh, uh, look with me at four truths related to this passage on this Palm Sunday morning. Truths from this passage in Luke chapter 19, and I do hope that you have your Bibles and that you will follow along and be a good student of the Word and be engaged with Scripture, uh, just so I can say it before anybody forgets, make sure your phones are turned off, right? Don't be that guy, you know, make sure they're turned off and, and uh, you're, you're good to go, all right? I want you to notice, first of all, the first truth in this uh, passage of Jesus' triumphal entry. Notice with, with me uh, the prophecy on the road to redemption, the prophecy on the road to redemption. Look, look in Luke 19, verse 29 through 34. It should be on the screen. I'll read it from the English Standard Version. It, it reads that when he drew near, when Jesus drew near to Bethphage from, and Bethany at the mount that was called Olivet, maybe roughly a two-mile journey, he sent uh, two of his disciples uh, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those uh, who were sent away and found it, they found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, what he told them to say, the Lord has need of it. Now, it may not seem to be an important detail or important that Jesus borrowed a donkey and rode it into the city, but this is a very significant point and emphasis in this passage, uh, and it is a direct fulfillment of biblical prophecy, and that's really important in concerning the authenticity and verification of Jesus Christ as Messiah. Uh, it is a fulfillment of Zechariah. Zechariah is an Old Testament prophet, an Old Testament book. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, it reads, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. And notice, uh, 520 plus years before 
uh, this would actually be fulfilled. Uh, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. God's prophet Zechariah spoke these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit 520 plus years uh, before this event actually took place in Jerusalem. Um, Zechariah's day, when Zechariah spoke this, uh, Jerusalem was laid in ruins. The Babylonians had, uh, during this time period of the prophet Zechariah, the Babylonian, a, a, a nation of great power during uh, Zechariah's time had destroyed the city of Jerusalem. So for him to speak these words to that present generation was just, it was inconceivable that any of this would happen. But Zechariah, under again the inspiration of the Spirit, was speaking forward to how this particular word would be fulfilled by the Messiah that would come. Zechariah spoke of a day in which the Messiah would come and Jerusalem would be filled with his glory. Jesus fulfilled this prophecy during this week and this event of riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Uh, King David, Solomon, uh, when they, at their coronation, they rode on a donkey during the ceremony of their coronation. The donkey was symbolic for humility. And so David, when he was coronated as king, and later his son Solomon, and, and, and perhaps even others, but I just remember particularly those two, that to ride this donkey as the king, you think, well, a king deserves more than a, than a donkey. But he should ride in a stallion, a horse, right? But it was a sign of humility, and how Jesus, and Jesus did this was, again, proving was one of the many, many prophecies that Jesus as Messiah uh, fulfilled that proved he was exactly who he said he was. Many of you may be familiar with who Josh McDowell is. And I remember uh, in his book, probably the most famous book that he wrote many years back, probably in the 70s, was Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And one of the things that uh, if you don't have that book, that's a very helpful book to have in your library as a, as a Christian. It's a, a book on apologetics, uh, on Christian, on evidences for our faith. And in there, he spends a lot of time in the discussion of why we believe that Jesus Christ is Messiah. And one of the one of the things that he spends time on there is how Jesus directly fulfilled Old Testament prophecies, and he said that the probability of one person fulfilling just eight, just eight of these Old Testament prophecies that referred to the Messiah in the Old Testament, the probability of one man fulfilling just eight is one in 100 trillion. To just get eight right, Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies the first time he came. So that's the reason we make emphasis upon the prophetic record. Uh, David Jeremiah says that for every one prophecy concerning uh, of Christ's first coming, there are eight prophecies concerning his second coming. And so Jesus came, yes, once, but the Bible is clear that he is coming again. The prophecy on the road to redemption was fulfilled by the Messiah. Notice secondly on this road 
to redemption, not only the prophecy, but notice secondly, the people on the road to redemption. The people on the road to redemption is a second observation. Jesus rode into the city, and there was many people that, you know, I hesitate to call it a parade. That almost sounds sacrilegious, but it really was. It was a parade. It was a grand parade of the likes that uh, perhaps they had not seen before. And the fact that it was Passover week, there would have been a great gathering of Jews from all over to to come into the city of Jerusalem. Some have estimated uh, a few million extra people that would have come into the city of Jerusalem during this week, during the celebration of Passover. Now, there are different types of people. The Bible says that there was multitudes among this gathering, but uh, just notice some of the different types of people that were present when Jesus came and entered Jerusalem on this road to redemption. Some were followers. Some were followers. In your Bibles, verse 29, it says that, uh, and we read this earlier, that uh, uh, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that was called Olivet, the Mount of Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples. Uh, so we know that he had his disciples. He had those that were, were, that, were that inner core of his team, his followers, that we refer to as, the, as disciples. Now, sometimes the Bible uses the word disciples to refer to just more general followers, but we know that uh, in most cases, when it refers to the disciples, it's specifically referring to these 12 disciples. So among the people that were there on this grand parade, on this road to redemption, some were followers, some were with Christ, some had uh, bowed allegiance to Christ, and certainly these disciples did that. Uh, And there were certainly others that were admiring of Jesus as well. Uh, we know that certainly, as I said, there was a, the disciples was a term that was used also for uh, followers that weren't necessarily part of that inner circle, that 12. I mean, we know by the time we get to Acts uh, chapter 1, there was over 120 people in the upper room. Where did all they all come from? So there were certainly, we know that there were people who were uh, maybe like a Nicodemus. We don't have it exactly on record, but the indication of Nicodemus was that, that he was somebody that uh, admired Jesus more than just uh, in a respectful way, but perhaps uh, more in a way that, uh, that later became perhaps a follower of Jesus. There were certainly people in John 6 that were followers of Jesus who were part of that feeding of the 5,000. And we know that many of them walked away when, when he began to lay out what the terms were for discipleship. So we know in this multitude, verse 37 speaks about the multitude of his disciples, um, that we know that in this crowd there were certainly people that were followers. But there were also in this crowd, verse 39, it says some of the Pharisees were in the crowd. So not only were some followers, but some were enemies. Not much has changed, has it? Some of the Pharisees that were in the crowd, verse 39, said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. This, all this, uh, all this uh, adulation and celebration, it's, 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 uh, you know, it's, it's not respectful. They were, well, you know why they said that. You know why they wanted him to rebuke his disciples? Because they were intensely jealous at the followers of Jesus. They saw Jesus 
as a threat. They saw him as a threat to their power and to their financial base and their political, uh, their political uh, power and situation that they enjoyed. And so Jesus was a threat. He was a rival uh, to their uh, followers. There are enemies. Anytime there's Jesus nearby, you're always going to see enemies of Christ nearby. I mean, think about just what you know and read of the Gospels. There's not too many opportunities when Jesus is ministering. You don't see someone out on the fringe, or perhaps they had gotten a little bit inward, but they're always watching Jesus. They're always looking for an opportunity to trip Jesus up. The Pharisees were really notorious for that. They were always trying to get into some dispute with some theological discussion. And it wasn't because, you know, they were really curious about the theology or what Jesus taught. They were looking for ways to trap Jesus in his own words that they might use those words against him. On this day, the Pharisees, again, they demanded that Jesus would rebuke his disciples, tell them to quit doing that. They did not like the fact that they were praising Jesus. Well, they are praising Jesus because he's worthy of being praised. Amen? Whether men or women or people will praise Christ or not, Jesus, by who he is, must be praised. He is Lord of lords. He is God, a very God. In fact, in verse 40, I don't think it's on the screen, but make sure you note it in your Bible. He said that he can't tell them to quit praising because he said if they were silent, he said that the very stones, the very rocks would cry out and praise. I don't want rocks and stones to do what I was created to do. Do you? So some were followers, some were enemies, but we can assume that in that great multitude, some were skeptics. Again, there's a multitude of people. It doesn't say specifically, but just by the pattern of knowing the Gospels, there are people who were skeptical in this great crowd. They're not enemies. They're not enemies like the Pharisees. They haven't fully embraced and trusted in Christ as their Lord and Savior. They're not followers. They're, they're still hedging their bets. They're still waiting to, to see what happens. They're really not sure about this Jesus. You realize those three groups are basically the three groups that still exist today, right? Followers, enemies, skeptics. And I don't think it would be too far off to say there's probably those three groups represented in this room here tonight or this morning, that there are followers, people who have trusted Christ. You may not think of yourself as an enemy, but the Bible says that if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Bible says that you're an enemy of Him. And maybe you're just still skeptical. You're kind of not sure about this whole Jesus thing. You don't want people to think you're a Jesus freak and you're really not sure about it. You're really not convinced that he is who he says he is and uh, what the Bible teaches. And my prayer is that, that you would be a good student and, and be a seeker and at the same time uh, trust and allow the Holy Spirit to direct your heart and open your mind to truth. Uh, don't close the door where the Holy Spirit is wanting to open a door and lead you into the truth of who Jesus is. Many kinds of people on the road to redemption, but there was also people on this road to redemption that sang praises to Christ. The praise on the road to redemption. The word Hosanna, it doesn't say it here in our Luke 
19 passage, but Matthew records it uh, on your bulletin. There's a quote from John 12 uh, that uses the word Hosanna. Hosanna means help. It means save me. So here, what are they calling out and worshiping? They're saying, help, save us. That's a good thing to call out to the Lord to do, right? That's a prayer he will never turn down. That's a prayer that Jesus will never turn down is when those sincerely call out for him to save them. Jesus loves that and always hears that prayer. Hosanna is a shout of praise and adoration. But does our passage, does our text help us to know specifically on on why or what exactly they were praising him for? Verse 37, it says that they praised him for what he had done. Verse 37, and as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples... I think, again, that's more than just the twelve, but the whole multitude of those who were acknowledging him and worshiping him, if we could call it that, and crying out Hosanna, as John and Matthew tell us, they began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that that they had seen. They began to praise God because of the mighty works they had seen. They were drawn to the mighty works. Remember what uh, I mentioned Nicodemus earlier. Do you remember what Nicodemus said in John 3 when he came to Jesus at night? He said, everyone knows that you're sent from God because nobody could do what? The works that you do. Jesus said in one place, said, if you don't believe me in anything of who I am, at least believe the works that I do. So, People uh, in John 6, I quote John 6 a lot because there's just so much there. They, they were ready. When, remember John 6? They, they, Jesus fed the multitude. He fed 5,000, the Bible says. Probably maybe double in that. If you counted women, children, and more, it was a magnificent miracle. And they were acknowledging that mighty miracle, that mighty work. And what did they want to do? They wanted to make him king. Kind of a natural human response until he told them and instructed them of what it means to live under his kingship. And that's when they all had a backdoor revival. They did the backdoor shuffle. They left. They began to depart. And he turned to his inner core and said, Are you going to leave as well? And Peter said, Where else can we go? For you and you alone have the words of life. They praised him. It was genuine. You, again, you had some people, again, part of that group, that weren't, they were genuine uh, worshipers and praising him, but you have others that I call the bandwagon participants. You know what a bandwagon participant is? You've seen people on videos, and they'll do experiments where, where they'll have some phony situation, and they'll have people that don't have any idea what's going on, but because the crowd, you know, is doing it, they're doing it. They don't even know why they're doing it. And uh, they'll have a crowd of people, and they're waving in the sky, or they act like they see something, and people will come up, and they start doing it too, and they don't know why they're doing it. They're just, they want to hop on the bandwagon. Well, there are people, this is a grand parade of Jesus entering Jerusalem. They just want to get on board. And there's some people, that's the way they look at Christianity. They're not followers, they're fans. Jesus is not looking for fans. He's looking for followers. Now, we who live on 
what we call the other side of the cross. We, I mean, these folks were giving God thanks and praise for the mighty works that they saw. But do you realize that we who live on the other side of Calvary, on the other side of the cross, do you realize how infinitely more we have and know to give God praise for? We're living on this side of the cross. We understand that redemption has been paid by Christ. We understand the precious sacrifice and the atonement of Christ. We, we have the benefit of, of God's full revelation in the New Testament that that the writers under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit uh, spell that out. We have so much more uh, than the crown knew. We know that Christ was crucified, died for our sins. We know that he rose from the grave on the third day. Uh, We know that he was received into heaven when he ascended. We know that one day soon, the Bible says that he is coming back. There is a second coming of Christ. And we know what the Bible teaches, that we who are in him, we are secure for all eternity. We have much more to celebrate than these folks. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. You just bought 30 seconds off the sermon. We know that Satan was defeated, sin was defeated, death, where is thy sting? Hell and the grave were defeated. See, knowing all this as believers, having the full, complete revelation of the New Testament that teaches these wonderful things, that spells out this this revelation of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished, if there's anything that should motivate us in a grander way, then, then the crowd on the side of the road, as sincere as they were, those truths should do something to our hearts. Sometimes, and we're probably overdue for one at some point, but sometimes we'll have a, a service. I know we did one in Thanksgiving, giving people opportunity to, to share and, and give testimonies of different things in their life. And sometimes we'll do just in a spontaneous way. Uh, where people, uh, you know, encourage to share something God has done in their life. And I always remind people that if you are a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, you always have one testimony always ready to go. I want to thank Jesus that he saved me, that I'm born again, that I'm made new in Christ. That's always should be ready on your lips. should never be, oh, yeah, 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 that's a good thing. No, it should always be ready. Thank you that I'm alive, but I'm alive in Christ. Amen? Not only did they praise him for what he had done, but verse 38 tells us that they praised him for who he was or who he is. Verse 38, they said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, some of them said it and really understood what they were saying, and then others, we know, didn't really grasp what... But they said it. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Almost sounds like the angels at Christmas, doesn't it? I mean, they're giving God praise, and again... Uh, John tells us and Matthew tells us that they had palm branches. Why palm branches? Palm branches symbolize triumph and victory. They're waving these palm branches in victory. And again, it may seem like an odd thing knowing what was going to happen. 
because the disciples would would had this little bit of you know confused understanding because Messiah in their mind was kind of this revolutionary figure that was going to overturn the Romans and reestablish Israel to its former glory. You remember the number one question in Acts 1 when Jesus and they're having this conversation and they dialogue and ask Jesus, this is their moment, they're with the resurrected Jesus, and what do they want to know? Jesus, at this time, are you going to return the kingdom to Israel? Here they are having a conversation with the resurrected Jesus, and they still want to ask questions about the political dynasty of Israel. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, right? And he said, it's not for you to know the times, seasons. Basically, a good way of saying, guys, it's really none of your business. That's in the Father's hands. They praised him for who he is, who he was. Waving palm branches. If you compare all four Gospels, They shouted, King of Israel, Jesus, the prophet, Nazareth of Galilee, the king who comes in the name of the Lord. One gospel writer records, Son of David. They praised him for who he was. And my friends, we should do the same. What words, when when somebody talks about, uh, when you praise Christ, when you praise God, like when I was praying earlier, you just stop and think about and have a list. I mean, you can find it on the Internet. The names of Jesus all together. And if you take each one of those names of Jesus or attributes concerning who Jesus is, and then they'll have a scripture reference. You take one of those and you just incorporate those into your daily time that I hope that you find time and a moment of spending with Christ and reading His Word and praying, even if it's 10, 15 minutes, take one of those and just begin to go through those names and begin to, when I say meditate, I'm not talking about some Eastern meditation, but I'm saying just think and contemplate those words that speak about who Jesus described Himself to be. My friend, you will find that whatever 10 minutes you set aside and thought, how am I ever going to get through this 10 minutes? of praying and reading Scripture, that seems so long. You'll find that you won't have enough time when you begin to contemplate how Jesus is the door. And thank God that door was open for you. That He stands at the door and He knocks at the door to people's hearts. And you begin to just think where you would be if that door was not open to you. Where would your life have turned out if Christ had not met you with an open door? That he was the way. You begin to talk that way. and You begin to think that way. And you begin to talk to Jesus that way. And begin to thank him for who he is. That he's the door that opened life to me. That when I thought I was dead and I was without hope, that open door was better than anything Monty Hall could ever offer. Now see, only eight of you know who that is. I just revealed my, my age. This is the best deal. Boy, now that, that sounds like a good Southern Baptist message right there. Let's make a deal, all right? The way, the truth, and the life. Praising Him for who He is. Now, this last observation in our passage may seem an odd 
description. But notice with me the pain on the road to redemption. The pain on the road to redemption. As Jesus came near Jerusalem, something very interesting Luke records here. Now, I believe only Luke records this. I might be wrong, but I think only Luke has this here in this detail. And we see something very interesting. And again, calling this the pain. What pain? Now, it wasn't Jesus understood where he was going. Jesus understood why he came. His crucifixion wasn't an accident. It wasn't things got out of hand. If those disciples had just covered my back. No, Jesus understood why he was born. He understood his purpose. Okay, But what pain are we talking about? Look, Just look with me, and it should be on the screen for easier reference if you uh, don't have your Bible open. But not, it's verse 41 through 44 of Luke 19. This is on the road to redemption. And when he drew near... And saw the city. What city is that? Jerusalem. Okay, this is where all this is going to happen. When he drew near and he saw the city, he wept over it. He says, verse 42, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. He's just you could just picture him standing there looking at the city of David and said if you had only known that on this day what was intended to make for peace. But Jesus says but now but now see something has changed here and time won't allow us to get into the significance of, of this particular passage, but just, but he says, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you, speaking to Jerusalem, the city. For the days will come upon you, Jerusalem, when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And tear you down to the ground. You and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you. City of Jerusalem. Why? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. It's a very powerful moment. Why was Jesus weeping? Was it because he dreaded Calvary? Well, of course he dreaded Calvary. I mean, Jesus was fully human. He wasn't half God, half He was fully human. When he sweated uh, droplets of blood in that garden and said, If my will, Father, that this cup would pass from me. That was the human agony, agony side. That wasn't why he was weeping. This was the time of triumph. This was the time of praise. But Jesus is weeping. Why? Not weeping for his own suffering and death that he would soon face. He was weeping with pain because he knew 
what the people of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem being Israel, what pain they would face, the consequences that, would, that they would face as a result of rejecting him as Messiah. Do you see what's going on here? This is, the, this is a moment of great triumph, but it's also a moment of demarcation. It's a moment when a line now is drawn in the figurative sand that Jerusalem, the people, the nation of Israel, they rejected him as Messiah. And all this momentary excitement, this grand parade, outward appearance of a coronation fit for a king really was a superficial act that within days they would be crying, crucify him, crucify him. And not only crucify him, but when Pilate offered to swap him with a murderer by the name of Barabbas, they chose Barabbas for Jesus. More picture of the depth of the collective nation that rejected Jesus as Messiah. But notice, I can't move away from that last. It's on the screen. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. This was Israel's time. Messiah had come. Prophesied. Clearly marked out hundreds of prophetic scriptures that even in the day of Herod, the, why, the, 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 the religious people around Herod, they were kind of indifferent. Yeah, we know about those prophecies. It took some pagans from Babylon to connect the dots to the time and moment of the birth of this Messiah. God is not limited to the people who should know. He'll go to the whosoever. And he chose some pagan men who were hungry, who were following words that go back to the prophet Daniel to come at the right time, the right moment, because their hearts were seeking this Messiah. Those who should have known, those who had all the information who've got eight study Bibles in their library, who've got joy and moody on 24 hours a day, access to books and resources beyond imagination. And look at the spiritual emptiness in our country. And I won't blame it just on our country. Look at the spiritual emptiness of our churches today. You see, this prophecy of destruction of Jerusalem was fulfilled in the year 70. We're in 2019. This is in the year 70. Historical record speaks about Nero, who was the Caesar at the time, that he set uh, his armies, his Roman armies, against the city of Jerusalem and laid it flat. Titus was the commander, the Roman commander. And history records speaks about how his soldiers 
uh, had his soldiers literally dig up the city so that the whole area was leveled exactly what Jesus had prophesied. Now listen to this interesting from a historian speaking about this devastation by the Romans on the city of Jerusalem in the year 70, fulfilling the words that Jesus, with tears in his eyes, don't let that get past you. Sometimes we're quick to speak judgments, but when Jesus spoke judgment, it was through tears in his, eye, in his eyes. It was sadness. It was compassion. Do we have that compassion? We're ready to condemn and judge. Is it with hearts that are broken for what could have been if they would only follow Jesus Messiah? Listen to what one historian wrote about this very event that was fulfilled in the year 70. The writer says, During the long siege, the Roman armies came and did exactly what Jesus said they would do. They barricaded the city. They surrounded the city. They cut off uh, any access to food. And eventually, there are stories of cannibalism that took place within the city of Jerusalem because they wouldn't allow any, anything in there and basically were going to starve them out. Bodies, this historian said, were stacked like stacks of wood in the streets. The toll of Jewish suffering was horrible, but the Jews of the city would not surrender. When eventually the walls were breached by the Roman armies, the commander, the Roman commander Titus, tried to preserve the temple by giving orders to his soldiers not to destroy or burn it because of the wealth of gold there. But the historian said the anger of the soldiers against the Jews was so intense that in kind of a maddened frenzy by their resistance they encountered, they disobeyed the order of the general, the Roman general, and set fire to the temple. And as a result of the intensity and the heat of the fire, there were great quantities of gold and silver which had been placed uh, that were obviously part of the temple structure and the walls and were in the temple for safekeeping, the intensity of the heat of burning the temple was so strong that the gold literally melted and ran down between the rocks into the cracks of the stones that when the soldiers captured the temple area in their greed to obtain the gold and silver, they took long bars and pried up the massive stones, and literally fulfilled when Jesus said not one stone was left standing upon another. The temple itself was totally destroyed, though the wall supporting the area on which the temple was built was left partially intact, and that wall today we know is the western wall, the only remaining part of the temple. Jesus' words literally came to fulfillment. This was a word of judgment. Why? Because they did not know. And when it says did not know, they did not take the gift that God had given them. Remember when John 1, 1, John 1 11 speaks of how Jesus came to his own, his own people, and they did not Receive him. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. 
Jesus, knowing what was coming, it caused him to weep. The moment of pain on the road to redemption. Jesus had compassion as he made his way into Jerusalem that day. Jesus had compassion on the spiritually lost men and women of that city who rejected him. And this same Jesus has compassion on lost men and women today who do not know Christ. This means that if you have never surrendered your life in trust to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, my friends, this, listen to me, this is your moment of visitation. This is your moment of opportunity. When? Now. When? This second. When? The words that are coming out of my mouth. This is your moment. Oh, no, 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 no. I may be like, was it Felix that listened to the Apostle Paul or Agrippa, one of those? And they said, listen, I've heard enough. Maybe, maybe I'll come back another, way, another day. You almost convinced me, Paul. Are you almost convinced? Heaven doesn't allow almost to convince. Jesus stopped and looked over the city of Jerusalem, and he wept at their missed opportunity. And today is your day of opportunity. You see, Jesus traveled the road of redemption, the road of victory. Why? To redeem you, to redeem me. Everything that he endured this week that we commemorate, he endured for you and me. On Sunday, he made this triumphal entry, this Palm Sunday in Jerusalem. He was worshipped and praised by many. And by week's end, he would be crucified, rejected. Think of this week's timeline. As Teresa said, take advantage of thinking of this week. Think of the events that go in this week and how Christ walked and prepared himself to the cross and how this timeline fits into our redemption. He would face great agony as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. He would be betrayed by Judas, denied by Peter, abandoned by his disciples, seized and arrested by his enemies. He would be falsely tried and convicted. Even people who hated each other managed to get together for a little while to convict Jesus. He would hear the crowd cry out, crucify him. And then he would be scourged, beaten, stripped, mocked, and crucified, one of the most heinous forms of public execution. They would place his body in a borrowed grave, in a borrowed tomb. And that would be a tragic story if it ended right there, wouldn't it? But when we gather again next Lord's Day, we will gather to celebrate that on the third day, Jesus came out of that grave alive. You see, the stone wasn't rolled away to let him out. It was to allow us to look in, to see that it was empty. You go to the place where Lenin, Marx, the great leaders of, that are revered by our world, and the corpse is still there. In Jerusalem, there is no corpse where Jesus was laid. 
He ascended to the right hand of the Father and he gave the promise that one day, as, he, as the angel told the disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, Men, why are you gazing and staring up in the sky as they watch Jesus ascend? Why are you gazing up in the sky? Do you not know that this same Jesus, this same Jesus, same physical body Jesus, not some nut claiming to be Jesus. You get that every few years, don't you? No, this same Jesus, that bodily you saw go up, this same Jesus will do what? One day, he will come down. And every eye will see him. And everyone will behold him. And Paul would say, every knee will one day bow at this Jesus. Now here's, here's the question. This is your day. This is my day. This is the day of visitation. Will you bow the knee to Christ as your Savior today? Or will you bow the knee to Jesus as your judge in the future?